Now, the number that is on the screen for you is a massive number. And it is the, the, the number is 1.84 trillion. Okay, that's the, the number. So it's 1.84 trillion pounds. Trillion is 12 zeros. And some of you may be aware that that number is the UK national debt, at least when I got this information this week. I say that because it grows by £5,000 every single second. And that equates to including children who do not pay tax, £36,000 per citizen. So all of you, even if you think you have no debt whatsoever, are in debt as a taxpayer by £36,000, and that even includes you children. The numbers are just mind-boggling, aren't they? But just imagine if that debt was put on you as an individual. It would be impossible to pay it off. The richest person in the world would be declared bankrupt numerous times over if they owed that much money. And this is the kind of debt that Jesus talks about a single person owing in a parable that we are going to read tonight. This is the kind of debt Jesus speaks about because it is the kind of debt that we can never pay. And it is the kind of debt, and this is the key, that God has forgiven all of us who have asked him for forgiveness of sin. And so if we've been forgiven this kind of debt, how ought we to respond when others seek our forgiveness. That's what Jesus is talking about when he illustrates the extent of forgiveness. So let's read this account in Matthew chapter 18 from verse 21 to 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? <clears throat> Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when the servant went out... He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. 
Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is God's word. Now Jesus has uh, just been talking about church discipline and the need in the community of disciples to forgive one another when we sin. Jesus talks about the wandering sheep, those whose sin has caused them to wander from the flock. And if we're going to welcome those people back after they have been disciplined, we need to forgive them. But what about if people continue to sin or they keep wandering and coming back? Peter has this in mind in verse 21. He asks, how many times should I forgive a brother or sister who sins against me? And he gives a number, up to seven times. Now in the Jewish culture of the time, rabbis taught that they should forgive three times, but not a fourth time. That was, that was the, the kind of teaching at the time. You forgive three times, but not the fourth. And so Peter here thinks he's being really big-hearted. He's saying, I'm going more than double what the rabbis are saying here, Jesus. What about seven times? How generous am I? It's double the amount of normal plus one extra. Well, in answering Peter's question, Jesus teaches that forgiveness is not limited in number. Jesus answered in verse 22, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. When Jesus says, I tell you, uh, like in the Sermon on the Mount, he's usually correcting a wrong interpretation that the rabbis have been teaching. And Jesus says the teachers are wrong. And even the big-hearted Peter is wrong. Not seven times, but 77 times. Or some translations say 70 times seven. So what does Jesus mean? Is he meaning, well, no, Peter, you're not actually big-hearted enough. The number's much bigger. So 77 or seven times seven, 490. Is that what Jesus means? Well, no, the meaning here is that your forgiveness is to have no limit. If you're counting, you're not forgiving. And this way of speaking is found in one other place in the Bible, Genesis chapter 4. Cain had murdered his brother Abel, and God punished Cain by banishing him from his homeland. And Cain was worried that someone would kill him if they found him. And so God said, Uh, these words to Cain. Not so. 
Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. Later on, Cain had a descendant called Lamech. And Lamech married two women. He was not a very nice person and he was very vengeful. Listen to his response to some people that offended him. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. Now, Lamech is not saying, uh, I get 77 shots at vengeance, is he? You can see the context here. If, if Cain is avenged, I'm avenged even more. It's not a limited amount of vengeance. It's, a, it's, it's vengeance upon vengeance. And Jesus turns Lamech's revenge into a principle of forgiveness. The principle of, I'll get my own back, is turned on its head into forgiveness. The disciples are to be as extreme in their forgiveness as Lamech is in his revenge. And this is important because the natural response that we have to someone offending us is to get them back, isn't it? That's the natural response. Lamech is a pretty, uh, he's a nasty piece of work, but he also is a pretty normal person as well in terms of wanting to get their own back. When someone seeks our forgiveness, Jesus says we are to give it. That's the point. Not a number, but unlimited. However, there's another important point to make here before we look at the the parable. This is not a call to treat sin lightly when there is no sorrow and no repentance. If someone sins against you and there is no confession, there is no asking for forgiveness and there is no repentance, you cannot forgive that person. We've seen that in the passage before with church discipline. We don't just allow people back with no repentance whatsoever. Now, you, you don't hold a grudge. You don't treat them with bitterness. You don't try and get payback. But neither can you restore the relationship either. God does not forgive those who do not seek his mercy and repent of their sin. We can't forgive in that case either. Jesus here is talking about something different. This is forgiveness of a brother or sister who is sorry for what they have done and is repented of sin. Even if the person sins again and again, even in the same way, we keep forgiving them when they seek genuine forgiveness. Jesus says something similar actually in Luke's gospel in chapter 17. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, notice that, if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and, even, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Notice how the disciples recognize how hard this teaching is. They asked the Lord, increase our faith. 
It's not an easy thing. And Jesus in Matthew's gospel gives a parable which is designed to show them the reason why this kind of forgiveness without limits is expected of God's people. The parable should increase our faith that we may be better able to forgive those who ask our forgiveness. And the parable is that of the unmerciful servant. And it's broken into sections. The first focuses on the extent of God's forgiveness to us, and the second on the resulting extent, therefore, of our forgiveness to others. And the first part of the parable shows us this. You have been forgiven an unpayable debt. Jesus begins the parable by saying, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like. So the kingdom of heaven uh, is the, the place where God's, God rules and reigns over his people. And the church is an expression of the kingdom of God. Uh, we've likened it before to a foreign embassy. The king in the parable uh, wants to settle accounts with his servants. And in, in these days, Kings would have servants or slaves who would have managed the money in the household. The money was entrusted to them for management. And the time had come uh, to settle accounts with his servants who'd managed the money. Now, we're not told how, but in verse 24, a man was brought to him who had not managed his money very well at all. He, had, he owed him 10,000 bags of gold. Now, to understand how much uh, this is, uh, one denarii was a day's wages, and one bag of gold was worth 6,000 denarii. So, 6,000 days' wages was about 20 years. That was one bag of gold. This man owed 10,000 bags of gold, so 200,000 years' wages. But perhaps a better way of understanding this is to understand that the the word for 10,000 in the Greek was the highest number that a Greek term existed for. And the word, interestingly in Greek, is myria, which we get our English word myriad from. It's the equivalent, in a sense, of of us saying zillions. It's not an an actual number that we can... Uh, we can actually have, but it's, just, it's so much money, we, we, we haven't got a word for it, so it's zillions of pounds. The point being made here is that this kind of debt that this man had was impossible to pay. And so in verse 25, the man and his family were sold to pay the debt. This was a punishment. The price of their being sold was going to be no more than even one bag of gold, That would have been the maximum price that a slave possibly would have got. And so this wasn't, um, they're going to be in prison until they pay it back. This was uh, a punishment because they owed that much money, it would never be paid back. It was a a never-ending punishment because the debt was never-ending. It would never end. So they'd be in prison just forever. And the man could do nothing except plead for mercy, which is what he does in verse 26. Notice what he does there. He falls on his knees and he says, Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Well, the man was foolish in, 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 this, in this regard because 
He, the, 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 the master can have patience, but the man is never going to be able to pay back everything. He, the debt would never, ever be paid off. And the master knows this. And so in verse 27, he takes pity and he forgives the man his debt. Take pity means literally his heart went out to him. He had compassion and it was just outrageous mercy. He, he cancelled the debt and he let him go, it says. Imagine how this man would feel. He is completely free now. His debt that was unpayable, but nevertheless would have been weighing him down enormously, had been taken away. He did nothing to deserve it. In fact, he deserved to be punished because he'd mismanaged the money. And this illustrates so well what God has done for us. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the the perfect standard that God has. He is the perfect king of the world that he made. And in order to be in his kingdom, we also must be perfect. We owe him perfection. Anything less would make God's dwelling place imperfect, which is incompatible with a perfect God. And to illustrate the extent of our problem, you can think of it this way. If God's standard is perfection, one imperfect action puts us in God's debt. But how do you pay back perfection again? Because if you're imperfect once, that's it, isn't it? You're no longer perfect because you've always got that stain, that, that thing you've done. If you think of it financially, if I, if I owe the bank £100 today and I missed it, tomorrow I can pay the bank £200 and it's all straight and all good. But if I owe perfection, well, I can't pay it back tomorrow or any other day because you can't pay back double perfect. You're either perfect or not. You can't be more perfect than perfect to pay the debt back to God. And so you see the folly of trying to earn salvation by good works. Because even if we were to do good things all of our lives, it wouldn't pay back even one imperfection, one sin, one bad thought. Nothing can pay that back. But what makes it worse is that we don't just fall a little bit short of perfection. None of us can say, well, you're right, you know, God, God is perfect, but I'm almost there. Because that word myriad also describes our sin, doesn't it? Because we sin every single day in myriad ways. Our words, our thoughts, our actions, the actions we should have done but haven't done, they're all going to be judged And the longer that we live, that debt gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you can never pay it off. Which is why the judgment for sin is death and hell. Because the eternal debt will be eternally unpaid in eternal hell. Just like the servant, we are guilty. And just like the servant, we deserve the punishment that is due us. Feel the weight of that. Our sin against God is unimaginably colossal. 
However bad you think you may be, you are far worse than you could ever imagine compared to God. All of us. We have all treated God appallingly. But just like the servant, the only place we can go is to plead for mercy from the king. And most wonderfully, God is a king who forgives. He forgives our debt. That colossal debt that we have, he forgives. Look at these wonderful words from Colossians chapter 2. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Aren't those words just wonderful? When a person was crucified, the crimes they were paying for were nailed to the cross so that everyone would know why they were being crucified. So Paul is saying here that our crimes were nailed to his cross. Our debts were nailed to his cross. And our debt is huge. But as we fall on our knees before the king, he takes pity on us and he cancels our debts and he lets us go because Jesus has paid for them. So we can go free. And when Jesus died, he cries out, it is finished, which means paid in full. What is paid in full? That enormous debt that you can never pay has been paid in full by Jesus as he died on the cross for our sins. Isn't that amazing? All of our sin has been paid for. You are debt free because of the amazing mercy that God has for us. No matter what you've done, no matter how bad it has got, we can be free from the guilt and the penalty of sin. That's wonderful, isn't it? That's good news. And if you're here today and you have not asked God for forgiveness of your sins, you can do so. Your debt is huge, yes, but God's mercy is even bigger. And it can be paid in full and you can be free. Well, after highlighting the, the huge debt that God has forgiven us, Jesus uses that context to show the disciples the extent of their forgiveness towards others. And that's the second big point of the parable. You must forgive others their debts to you. Verse 28 shows the shocking attitude of that servant who has just been forgiven. It says, But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. When it says there, when he went out, that means uh, straight away. So he, he literally, ha he, he's got this huge debt uh, that's, that's enormous He's just been forgiven it and immediately he goes out and as he leaves the presence of the king, he meets someone that owes him some money. In verse 24, the servant was brought to the king. Notice here how he found one of his fellow servants. He, go, he finds him, 
So he leaves the presence of the king who's just forgiven him, the huge debt, and what does he do? He goes and looks for the one that owes him money. It's outrageous, isn't it? He was on the lookout. He had anger and vengeance in his heart. And that fellow servant owed him a hundred silver coins. Now, this is not an insignificant amount. That's not what Jesus means here. Uh, the, 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 in fact, the amount that he's, he's owed, 100 silver coins, is about 100 days' wages. It's a significant debt. It's a significant thing to owe that much money to a person. Jesus is not saying the amount doesn't matter. It was large. But here's what he is saying. It is trivial when compared with the huge debt that was forgiven him a moment ago by the king. It's not a trivial amount, but it is when compared to what he has just been forgiven. And his anger is shown, he grabs him by the neck, starts to throttle him, and demands to be paid back. And that behavior is a lot more like Lamech in Genesis chapter 4 than the, the merciful master that has just forgiven him. He's unrighteous, he's furious. He's vengeful. And in verse 29, his fellow servant's words are almost identical to the words used by the servant in verse 26. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Notice it's almost exactly the same. The difference being 100 days wages is feasible to pay back. But still, this is a plea for mercy, just like the one to the king. Now, the king's response was to be merciful to an unimaginable extent. He forgave that colossal debt, which is what makes verse 30 so shocking. It says, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. He's been forgiven so much more, but he was not willing to show mercy to his fellow servant. And he has him thrown in prison. Now we feel the the horror of this attitude, don't we? Coming so soon after the forgiveness of so much. And, And that horror that we feel is shared by the other servants in verse 31. It says that they're outraged. And it is just, it is outrageous, isn't it? to think that he wouldn't forgive after being forgiven so much. And they went and told the master everything that had happened. And the master shares in the horror. He calls the servant in. And notice what he says in verse 32 and 33. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled... All that debt of yours, because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? He describes a servant as wicked, which his behavior obviously shows. And he reminds him of the debt that he's been forgiven. You notice that? All that debt. That colossal, that unfathomable amount. 
And the question at the end of verse 30 has a very obvious answer, doesn't it? Of course, he should have mercy on his fellow servant. And so the man is handed over to the jailers to be tortured until he pays back all he owes. How long will it take him to pay back all he owes? Forever. Forever. And then there's the punchline in verse 35 that we, as forgiven people of God, need to feel the weight of. Look at verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Notice what Jesus says here. If you do not forgive your brother or sister, then God will treat you like that servant. There will be no mercy. One writer says that there is no such thing as an unforgiving Christian. That being doesn't exist. Christians forgive. One of the distinguishing marks of a Christian is the forgiveness of others. Forgiveness of others does not earn our forgiveness from God. That's not what Jesus means here. Rather, our forgiveness of others shows that we have been forgiven a huge debt by God that is far bigger than anything anyone will ever do to us. And if we are never forgiving and are choking people and punishing them for what they have done to us, then it shows that we have not understood one bit of the forgiveness that God has given us. And by definition, therefore, you cannot be a Christian if you do not understand forgiveness of God. Now, this is not to say that forgiveness is easy, because it is not. The debt owed by the second man was not insignificant. People can hurt us, Christians can hurt us deeply. That is not an insignificant thing. It's not to say either that forgiveness is cheap. Forgiveness requires sorrow and forgiveness on behalf, and repentance on behalf of the one that seeks forgiveness. But it does say that when someone does seek mercy from you, you must give it. Because whatever anyone has ever done to you, it is trivial when compared with the sin debt that we have been forgiven by God. Now in the context of this, in the church, in the context of church discipline, in the church we are going from time to time to hurt one another and offend one another, even at times deeply. That happens. That happens in all churches through all history. But a community of the forgiven must be a forgiving community. So how do we do this? Well, we forgive like God forgives us. First of all, God shows us our sin. We've seen in verses 15 to 20 how when sinned against, we are to approach the sinner and rebuke them. We are right to tell someone when they have done wrong, what they have done and how it's made us feel. Because God comes to us and reveals to us our sin so that we may repent of it. So God shows us our sin and we are to be the same to others, to show them that, you know, this is wrong. This really has hurt me. 
Secondly, God is always ready to forgive. In the verses in Luke 17 that we looked at earlier, Jesus says, however many times they come back, we must be ready to forgive them. We cannot forgive the unrepentant and the person that doesn't want forgiveness, but we must always be ready to forgive them. God does everything possible to make it easy for us to be forgiven. He has provided the means of forgiveness through the death of his son. He has provided the word of God to show us where we have gone wrong. He provides the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin. And so we should also provide a route for forgiveness for those who have offended us. And thirdly, God's forgiveness does not hold the sin against us. He doesn't hold it against us once we're forgiven and bring it up again. Uh, Some verses that help us in this are uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 30 to 32. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, uh, God, forgave you. How does God treat us? He is kind. He is compassionate, despite having been sinned grossly against by us. And we are to forgive others in this way, just as in Christ, God forgave you. A spirit of unforgiveness grieves the Holy Spirit. And it brings out all those feelings and actions that we are to get rid of. Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander and malice. We're angry because we want our own back. We're bitter and miserable. Rather, we need to be kind and compassionate, just like Christ is with us. Nothing is more Christ-like than forgiving others. And nothing will be a greater witness to the world than living together in this way in light of the huge debt that God has forgiven us. Now this is not easy to do. It's not a a, a cheap or a light thing. And sometimes it's not even all that black and white. We looked at in church discipline how repentance needs to be weighed and, and seen to be what it is. We need to pray with the apostles, Lord, increase our faith. But where better place to come when we want to think about these things than the Lord's table, where we come to think again on the price that God paid so that we could be forgiven of our sin debt. So in a moment, we're going to come around the Lord's table, but before that, we're going to sing Uh, We're going to sing a hymn which speaks of the place where Jesus died. And in one of the verses, uh, it really fits in such a lovely way with uh, what we've just been saying. It says, There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. So let's stand and let's sing in response. There is a green hill far away. And after we have sung... Uh, We'll gather around the Lord's table.